We're in Acts 16. So we're one chapter behind Sundays. We'll catch up. Acts 16 is the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He grabs a guy named Silas. And what we see in chapter 16 is this. God works. People work. Prayer works. There's homework. And it all equals a great church work. That's this chapter. Are you ready? Let's go to work. Verse one. Paul came also to Derby and up to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. This is a shocking little paragraph. Shock number one is where Paul goes. It's a city called Lystra. If you remember chapter 14, what happened to Paul in Lystra? They drug him out of the city, stoned him until they thought he was dead, and they would know when somebody was dead, and they left him for dead. Okay? He goes back to that city. So let's say you went to Iran. I don't know why you would do that, but let's say you did. And you got thrown in jail, and you were beaten and tortured for a couple years, and you got out. And you get back to the United States. A year and a half later, would you say, you know, I think I'm gonna go back to Iran. (laughs) No, that's what he does. So why would Paul, a reasonably smart guy, go back to the city that had nearly killed him? I think there's one reason, Timothy. He wanted Timothy. That's why this chapter starts out that way. There's a believer named Timothy. That Paul had seen Timothy and had some kind of a relationship and kind of knew about him and said, I want him on my team and I don't care what it takes. I'll go back to a really dangerous place because I want him on my team. He's like the ultimate recruiter. I'm going to get Timothy. And he was right. Timothy will become Paul's number one right-hand dude. So he goes to the limit to get this young man on his team. You're on my team. That's why. Second shocking thing is this, is what he does to Timothy, right? He circumcised him, verse three. Now circumcision comes up all the time, doesn't it? It's kind of like, like, what's the deal? Like, how do people know if someone's circumcised? Like we meet a guy and we're like, so what do you do for a living? Are you married? Do you have kids? Was it like back then? Hey, you circumcised? Was that like the topic of conversation? Because it seems like a problem where they're like, this is gonna be such a problem that we gotta deal with it. And I'm like, well, how does anybody know, right? In chapter 15, the whole debate was about circumcision. 
that there's this guy named Titus in Galatians that tells us about Titus. And Paul's like, you will not circumcise him. And he goes to the wall for Titus. And Titus is like, thank you, thank you, thank you, Paul. And now Timothy, his number one recruit, he doesn't. Seems weird to me. It's like, Paul, shouldn't you be more consistent? What are you doing here? Here's what I think he's doing. Listen as I read 2nd, 1st Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul looked at sharing the gospel as something to win at. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but outside the law of Christ, but under the law of Christ, excuse me, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Brilliant passage. Paul is saying, I'm going to respond to people in a way that makes the gospel beautiful to them, no matter what it takes. And I gotta know how that works. That sometimes, just because someone's a little bit different, you respond differently. So maybe an illustration of this would be, about nine years ago, I bought a motorcycle. And I bought the crotch rocket murder cycle bikes, you know, the fast ones that are dangerous. That's what I like. So I bought one of those and I noticed right away, when you ride a motorcycle, everybody else on a motorcycle, guess what they do? They wave to you. But what I noticed was, depending on what kind of motorcycle you rode, there was a different way you actually wave. So like the gold wing riding kind of crowd, when, when they would see you, this was the wave, kind of, a, hey, hand up, kind of cruising along, back on the handlebar. The cross rocket crew that are all hunched down and going really fast, when they would wave, it was a very quick, like out to the side and then back. Like, I don't even have time for this. I'll be doing 100 miles per hour in a second. So just boom, boom. <laughs> then the Harley crew, the Harley crew is a low two, down and you don't make eye contact. You don't even look at them because it might be a fight. You actually, I would just go, look the other way. Okay, we're good, man. And then you have the, the scooter crew who don't really belong, but they want to belong. And so they do, they do the happy eye. Hi, hi, I'm riding too. Look, look. <laughs> and you didn't even wave to them. You're just like, oh, please, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> it's like that. There are different subcultures and Paul knows in order for me to infiltrate into those subcultures, I have to do something here. I have to make it right. To communicate the gospel, it's called contextualizing it. You find the context in which you want to bring the gospel 
And then you don't change what the gospel is, you just make it appropriate to them. Uh, James Dennis shares a great illustration of this. And it's this, imagine you go sit in a hospital room and you're waiting kind of out in the waiting room and a doctor comes and walks into door number one and you hear behind that door him saying, you need to sit down and you need to relax. And he walks out of that room and shuts the door. Walks into door number two. And there you hear him say, you need to get up and run. What is wrong with you? Be active. Walks out, shuts the door. You're like, man, that seems so inconsistent. You wait a little while, out of door number one where he said, you need to lay down and relax. Out of that comes a very pregnant woman. Oh, out of door number two, where he said, get up and run, comes a man who looks very pregnant. You need to run, right? It's a tailored, contextualized message for each of them. And, and I think that's what Paul knows right here. Timothy is a hybrid. He's half Jew, he's half Greek. He's perfect for the work that Paul has for him. Bro, you, you are able to work with jo- both the Jewish people that are gonna get saved and the Greek people. You're perfect for this. However, when we go to places like the synagogue, which is where Paul always started. This is gonna be question number one for you. And we'll never be able to get to the gospel because we'll be so involved with this question. It will become a barrier to the gospel. So we have to take care of this. So what Paul is saying is this, everything in my life and those that are going to join with me, it all has to bow down to the supremacy of people getting saved. And if there's an obstacle or something we are doing that does not allow the gospel to go freely, we will change that. That's a missionary mindset. I wonder, do we have the same mindset today? Because I think sometimes believers engage in activities that are actually barriers to the gospel. I've had this conversation so many times with young men. I just like to go to the bar and have a couple drinks and hang out a bit at the bar. I still love Jesus. I'm like, that's a barrier for the faith. Do you know that? When you go into those places and you have conversations with people and they find out you're a Christian, what do they say to you? They're like, oh, really, what are you doing here? Right? The very people in the bar, yeah, they do say that to me. They kind of feel like, well, I, I didn't know you're supposed to be in here. Man, you might have the freedom to do that, but is it the best? The clothing we wear, the jokes we tell, the entertainment we will watch. Are those things barriers to the gospel? Because Paul is so kingdom-minded. He says, even circumcision, something I fought tooth and nail to make sure no one had to do. If it's gonna prevent the gospel from going out, it will bow to that. I love that. Missionary mindset. I hope we all have that in our life. Jesus, take whatever causes people to think Less of you and your people take it out of my life because it's not worth it. The gospel must be supreme. I did hear a second reason why he circumcised Timothy and it's this one. If you read back into chapter 15, there's a big division between Paul and Barnabas over a young man named John Mark because John Mark had gone out with them on their first missionary journey. Halfway through it, he gave up and went home. So there are some that say, This was Paul's test of Timothy. Do you have the metal to make it with me? If you do, do this. Kind of like 
the weed out courses in, in college where, you know, if you wanna become a nurse, they give you really hard classes in the beginning. If you make it to those classes, okay, now you're into the nursing program. Or hell week for the seals. If you make it through the hell week, okay, now you can be a seal. I'm sure Timothy was like, can I do hell week instead? Is that an option here? Because <laughs> I'd rather do that. And I don't quite buy that, but maybe there's some of that in there. Because Paul wanted people that were warriors on his crew. You gotta be able to hang with me and I've been stoned and I've been beaten and bad things are gonna happen to me and I can't have you crying and going home halfway through it. So maybe there might be a little bit of truth to that. So here's, he's got his crew now, Silas, Timothy, and now they hear the Macedonian call, verse six. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go up into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What a weird little passage. Have you ever, could you like write down a time God has forbidden you from doing something? And I'm not saying like murdering your neighbor, that's obvious. But like he's being forbidden from traveling from one city to the next city, from this place to that place. I tried to think of one time in my life where there was like, God said no to me for something that's not sin. And I couldn't think of a time. Like this is like really interesting. So how was Paul forbidden from going east into Asia? What happened? Nobody knows, but verse 10, for the first time in the book of Acts, the pronoun we is used. Guess who joined Paul's crew? Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts. So there is much conjecture that he's up in the highlands up there and Galatians kind of says something about this. If you look at chapter four, that something happened to him, he got sick or something. So maybe quite possibly what prevented Paul from going up further into Asia was he got sick. And so he comes down to the coast of Troas to recover. So it may not have been a vision or a prophecy or people tell, it may have simply been, man, I'm too sick, I can't go in here anymore. We gotta turn around, we gotta go back. I think God guides through sickness. God guides through fired jobs. God guides through breakups. Like God sometimes guides those way. I'm convinced this church exists because I got strep throat. If you don't know the story, I'll tell you it really quick. I was a pastor at Applegate, had been there for about nine months, a little bit over that, almost a year. And there'd been a tsunami that had happened in India. Six months before that, I felt led to go to India and help. So it took a while to put the trip together. It ended up happening at the very end of August, beginning of September. We go over there. I'm over there for two weeks. Pastor's conference. We put in some wells, did some water 
filtration stuff because there's a lot of uh, contamination of wells that happened because of that tsunami. So did really cool stuff, just loved it. Came back from that, got home, got super sick. And that was right about the time of H1N1 and SARS. So I go to the local hospital here. I'm like, I'm sick. And they're like, where have you been? India. They're like, yes, first Southern Oregon case of H1N1 and SARS. So they just start poking me and prodding me and testing me and testing me. I just get sicker and sicker. And like five days go by and they're like, we don't know what's wrong with you. So I just went down to urgent care. I was like, could you swab my throat for strep? Yeah, you have strep. And I get strep really bad. It just takes me out. So there's a couple more days for me to get better. So all in all, I was gone from my job for like three and a half weeks. And then the day I came back, it was a Tuesday night, I was doing a mission update on the trip. So I'm all dressed up like in my India garb and stuff. And Peter John Corson, the pastor at that time, came in my office and said, hey, I got an idea. I'm like, yeah, what is it? Uh, I'd like to start a church in Grants Pass. I want you to do it. I'm like, what? what? Huh? Oh, I think what he's really saying is, you've been gone for three and a half weeks? We didn't miss you? Go. <laughs> right? I'm totally happy. I don't know. I think it was my sickness. So God guides sometimes through stuff like that. And maybe it's that supra natural thing that happens right here that ends up getting Paul, not going into Asia, but turning down to Troas, seeing this vision and heading over into Macedonia, into Europe. I think that's sometimes how God guides. And this becomes, they said, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They knew God's will through these things. I think there's a lot of people who are always trying to figure out God's will. What's God's will? What's God's will? God's will. What I found in my life and those that I know, the big important things, God makes them very obvious. You're not gonna miss God's will on the big important things. But I think, What happens to us is this. We get so knotted up over God's will on things I don't think God cares about. To be honest with you, I don't think God cares what kind of car you drive. I don't think he cares. I think you just go for wisdom there. Is it a good car? Is it a dependable car? Can I afford the car? Is it the right kind of car for me to drive? If it is, buy it. I don't think God cares one bit about that. Here's what he does care. If you buy the car, will you use it for my kingdom? That's what he does care. If you take that job, if you move to that city, will you do those things? And when you do them, will you be a light for me there? I think that's really what God cares about. Not so much the car we drive or even the house we live in. I'm not saying don't pray about those things, but if you get so knotted up over those things, I think we can miss the bigger issues, which is, are you usable for my kingdom and for the gospel? That's what really matters. So here, it becomes very obvious. This is what we're supposed to do. Go do that. And they do it. And what we'll see is they end up with somebody that's very much saying, use my stuff for the kingdom. Look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside 
where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they head to the main city in this area, Philippi. It was a Roman colony, which meant this. If you lived there as a free person, you had the exact same standing as a Roman citizen. Lower taxes, you were a citizen, your kids would become, you'd be born in. It was, it was a very, very big thing. It was awarded this city because when Caesar Augustus went after Julius Caesar's, his adopted dad's killers, Brutus and Cassius, Philippi helped him take out those two guys. So then Caesar Augustus rewards them with, hey, you're a colony now. And everyone who was free in that city that day became Roman citizens and paid less in taxes. Now, by this time, there's a bunch of slaves there. Most Roman cities were about half free people, half slaves. So it's a, it's a mix. So that's this place. It's the number one city. And it's the first city in Europe that the gospel is preached in. The very first one. When I look at this little section, how history hinges on Paul not heading into Asia, but heading west into Europe, it's wow. What if he had not been turned? What if he had gone into Asia instead of Europe? What happens? How different is world history? When you look at the big events of world history, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, massive, massive event. The discovery of America by Columbus, whether you agree with it or not, he did it. History was changed by that, right? The battle at Trafalgar and the 4th of July, 1776, massive historic event. September 11th, 2001. How has history been changed by that date? The 28th of June, 1976. My wife's birthday. <laughs> historic. This is one of those things that the shape of our world rings on the fact that Paul goes west and Europe becomes Christian and then missions come out of Europe and the world is absolutely changed by that one turn. This vision, them going, it is massive, massive, massive. And when they go there, they're shocked. They go to Philippi, no synagogue. So every other city they've been to, there's a synagogue. It required 10 Jewish males to have a synagogue. That means there's no Jewish population in the city. So he's encountering people now that have zero Bible, zero Bible. And then he's like, well, I know usually there'll be a place of prayer if there's not a synagogue. He goes to the river and there's no men there, just a bunch of ladies. He'd seen a Macedonian man, he meets a woman. But the woman he meets, Lydia, I'm convinced she is the glue, the dynamite for the church at Philippi. Here's why. It says she's a seller of purple clothing. 
Now you probably heard this before. Purple was like the most expensive color. So it was reserved for royalty, rich people and royalty. royalty. Because it came from this little, it was a murex shellfish. And you had to crush it and you pulled out this little heart and it had purple blood and you got a drop of blood. They said, and this is, I don't know if this is exactly right, but I read it in a commentary and commentaries are always right. 8,000 of these to make one gram. I thought, man, that just seems a little bit much. Maybe it's true or not. Whatever it was, it was a massive number of these poor little shellfish. You had to harvest to get a tiny amount of this dye to dye clothing. So the clothing was extremely expensive. But the city she lived in, Thyatira, is not close to the ocean. So here's what is thought about this lady. She's a technology lady. Right about this time, there was this root called the matter root. And the matter root was discovered that if you processed it correctly, it produced a purple dye. So all of a sudden you could pick, get these big giant roots, get the pulp from them, do some stuff to them, and you had a big wash tub of purple dye. And it may be very well that Lydia was on the cutting edge of this new technology that was making purple a less expensive cloth. And now she's exporting around the whole place of Rome. And she is wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. She's like Facebook, Instagram. Like she's that level. She goes public, she's a billionaire. So she's probably extremely wealthy technology lady. And the minute she gets saved, she opens her house. She does housework. Come stay at my house. Now there's this little verse here. If you know your theology, verse 14, it says this, and it's a very fascinating little phrase. And it talks about how she gets saved. It's the only time that Acts does this. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Not to believe, but to pay attention. So if you know Wesleyans, Wesleyans like this verse. And they call this little thing right here, and there's other verses for it, prevenient grace. So there's irresistible grace, that's Calvinism. And it means this, when that grace happens in your life, you cannot resist it, you will get saved. That's irresistible grace. Every system says you have to have God's work happen in your life to believe. Because Jesus says, no man can come to me unless they are drawn by the Father. So there's a work of God that has to happen in the life of an unbeliever for them to be able to receive the gospel. So the Calvinists say, it's irresistible grace. Your heart is open. Immediately you will believe once irresistible grace has happened. The Calvinists say that. The Wesleyans say, no, there's another thing called prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is this. God opens your heart up to be able to understand the gospel, but then you are still given the free will to say, I believe or I don't believe. And this is one of their main verses for defending that idea. So irresistible grace over here, provenient grace over here. So Matt, what are you? What am I? I'm not gonna tell you. No. <laughs> Here's what I am. I think God saves it any way he wants. So I think, I, for me, Psalm 115 verse three is huge. God is in heaven and does what he wants. And what we wanna do though, is we wanna take God and like put him into a box. This is how God always has to save people. I just say, man, I see in the Bible, sometimes it's Saul. You will be saved. 
I'm gonna knock you to the ground. I'm gonna blind you. I'm gonna sit you in a room for three days and you're gonna get saved, period. But then you have Cornelius in the next chapter, a God-fearer who gives and God sees him as like, man, that's awesome. Sends an angel, go talk to Peter. He's gonna tell you about the gospel. He gets saved. Then you got Lydia who then is sitting by a riverside. She's, she's succeeded in everything she's wanted to do, but there's still this dissatisfaction in her life. She's sitting there wondering, wondering, wondering. And then one day Paul comes and God does something in her heart that allows her to actually understand because the natural man cannot understand the gospel. Opens her heart in such a way, she hears it and says, yes, I believe that. I think just God saves. And he uses every way that he wants to because he's God and he's sovereign. He's gonna do it the way he wants to. So that's my answer. I'm a Wesleyan, I'm an Arminianist, I'm a Calvinist, I'm all of it. God just saves people because he loves people. And ultimately, God wants, first, Second Peter 3 verse 9, everyone to come to repentance. And so he calls and woos and opens hearts and does it all. And I love that about God. So that's where I stand. And you can disagree, and I'm okay with that. So here, she's hearts open, she believes, and instantly she says, Come use my home for ministry. Come use my home. And they do. And as we were going, verse 16, to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So now this place, this location, now has like significance. In the Bible, places have significance. Mount Bashan, read about it in the Old Testament. And that's a significant place. And in the Bible, there are these high places and these high places have real significance. And I think there are, you know, Ephesians talks about principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. And that could either be up in the heavenlies or that could be actually places where there are strongholds. Read Daniel chapter 10. So this place of prayer now, I think it has this significance. And it attracts now this girl that has a demon in her. So as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. We did this on Sunday a while back. The spirit of divination is literally there, the spirit of the python. There's a myth behind that. Uh, Zeus comes down, Apollo, uh, Greek name, Roman name, comes down, kills a python, inhabits the python with his own spirit, reanimates it. So the python, according to this area, the, the mythology behind it was the python was inhabited by the spirit of Zeus. So she has this spirit in her that gives her the power to speak the words of Zeus. So that's all kind of in that little divination. And brought her owners, owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Totally. So now Paul, through annoyance, says, you got to come out. And the reason is she's saying to everybody, this great little phrase, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. To a Jewish mind, to a Christian mind, what do we think? Awesome. To a person in Philippi, who the most high God is who? Zeus. What is she saying? 
these guys are pointing to Zeus. They're telling you how to get saved by Zeus, right? So you always have to go back into the context of the culture to know how would they be hearing this? They're not hearing it as Yahweh. They're hearing it as Zeus, Zeus. He's the most high God. So that's why he's like, "Mm mm-mm, we gotta stop this. The same thing happens today. People say, I believe in God. I can say, which God? Oh yeah, we believe in Jesus too. Who's your Jesus? Is he, 2 Timothy 3, 16, God manifest in the flesh? Is that who he is? Or is he a created being? Or is he the brother of somebody? Who is your Jesus? That we have to define these things by our culture. And so Paul knows she's gonna lead these people astray because she's talking about Zeus and I'm talking about Yahweh and they're not the same. So this poor girl is trapped in that system. So there's a culture, there's a temple and it's all revolving around this myth of Zeus and the Python and divination and she is now trapped in it and the culture is okay with it and she's being exploited by that culture and by that system. And Paul says, not anymore. I like that. I think as Christians, we should be looking at our culture and systems that are in our world and be saying, if they're exploiting people, then, then as gospel, kingdom people, we have to say no. So I was reading this commentary that mentioned this book, I'm gonna get it. It's by Robert Linthencombe. And it's called this, City of God, City of Satan. And Robert was a youth pastor in a Midwestern town, a bigger Midwestern town, about 50 years ago. And worked as a youth pastor. And during his work as a youth pastor, he was meeting these these kids in this church and trying to help them. And he was noticing when the girls would turn like 16, they'd be sucked out of the youth group and they'd go into prostitution. It started just breaking his heart. And so he's like, man, I gotta throw myself into this. I gotta work hard to stop this. So he gets in and he starts, you know, really saying, you gotta be around godly people. You gotta, you gotta watch your friendships. You gotta start studying the scripture. You gotta start praying. Good things, man, brilliant things, totally. And there's this one girl that was super special to him. Young, beautiful 13-year-old, came in 13, ninth grade, 10th grade, doing pretty good. And then she started saying, hey, they've been coming and trying to get me into prostitution. He's like, hang out with good friends, Make sure that you're reading your Bible. Make sure you're praying, all good things. And then a month later, she's gone. He's like, oh man, sees her three months later. It's obvious what she's doing. He's brokenhearted. Honey, what happened to you? You had good friends. You're praying, you're reading the Bible. You're coming to church. What happened to you? And she said, well, first they came and they beat up my brother and broke his leg and sent him to the hospital. And then... I still said no. And then they beat up my dad and they sent him to the hospital. And they told me, if you don't join us, your mom's next. I couldn't let my mom get beat up. So I said, no, I'm not gonna let that happen. And I joined him. And Robert said, well, why didn't you call the police? And she looked at him indignantly and said, who do you think they are? And he said, in that moment, he knew there are systems in place that if you don't take out that system first, it doesn't matter how much Bible, how much church you have, these people are set up for failure. And so he started saying, I've got to go against, I've got to start higher up. I've got to start hurry up. I've got to go for 
systems that exploit people and then set them free so they can live the gospel. This girl was stuck in a system that was exploiting her. And Paul had to go against that dark force. There's a dark force sometimes in people, in governments, and institutions. That unless you take out that dark, dark force, and I talked about this on Sunday, there are dark powers that have to be addressed first. And we'll see it in chapter 16 or 19. I think the gospel way to address dark forces. And until that system is broken, there's no freedom for people. You gotta break that, that bondage first and then people can be set free. So that's what Paul does here. And this is what happens to him. Look what happens to him. Verse 19. I'll speed up because I'm gonna finish. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these people are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Can you imagine that? Right? Singapore still canes people. Remember Michael Fay, the kid that, had, that got caned? And like, they reduced his sentence from six blows to four blows, and it was still brutal. I guarantee they hit these guys more than four times. It's a brutal beating. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. You see this anti-Semitism underneath it, right? They're Jews. They're Jews. Anti-Semitism to me is one of the weirdest things. Why has it been so rampant for so many just millennia? You can go back to Haman. Like, what is the deal there? If that's not a spiritual battle, I don't know what is. There's something spiritual about that. Like Psalm 37 says that they will, the, the enemies of the Lord will align themselves against his people. And there's been an aligning of people against the Jews for thousands and thousands of years. And they use Rome as an excuse Supernationalism, right? They're advocating things that, that as Romans we can't do. Really? No, they're not. What's the real problem? Followed money. They lost some money. That's the real problem. So now they beat them, throw them in prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The first Christian concert. It'll bring the house down, man. And the prisoners were listening to them. What would you think about that if you're in prison? And you hear people just singing and praying and carrying on. You're like, what in the world? What are you on, man? I want some of that. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. How did Paul know the jailer was gonna commit suicide? 
because he has to call for lights to see. How does Paul know? It's either some kind of prophetic word of knowledge or something, or the jailer screaming his head off. Those are your two options, I see. Could be either one. He rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is incredible to me. Things are super, super bad. You're in the bottom of the dungeon. You're in the lowest part, the worst part. Your feet are stretched out into a very painful position. You've had the snot kicked out of you. Your back has been beaten with rods and you start to pray and sing and give thanks. Have you ever been in a really bad situation? It's just really, really bad. And you've had somebody say, you know what we should do right now? We should pray. Have you ever had someone do that? How's that make you feel? Dude, I ain't praying, man. This is bad. No, I don't want to pray. I don't want to give thanks. Like, that's how I feel. These guys are just, they're, they're so amazing to me. They're just beat. They're praise the Lord, right? We're beat, man. Praise the Lord, we're alive. Praise the Lord, we set that girl free. Praise the Lord for Lydia. I don't know, man. It's just amazing. I'd be like, get my lawyer. I didn't have my Miranda rights. Someone's going to pay for this. Oh, ooh. Now, why do Paul and Silas respond this way? It's because it's who they are. There's this great saying, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what flavor they are until they get in the hot water. I think I'm a very bitter black tea. That's what I am. <laughs> They're just brilliant. You're like, man, wow. And did you know this? Your brain has so much power. If you will sing and you will praise and you will give thanks in bad times, do you know that changes your life? If they right here were concentrating on how bad things were, I can't believe this is so, would they feel better or worse? You feel worse. Your brain is so powerful. There's this article, I just read it. It's in the British Medical Journal. This roofer, you can Google it. This roofer jumped off a roof, landed on a seven inch nail, went straight up through his boot, He's looking at the nail sticking out. Crying, agony, ah! They take him to the hospital. Every time they try to touch the nail at all, he just freaks out. They give him fentanyl. You know what fentanyl is? Concentrated synthetic heroin. As if heroin isn't strong enough, fentanyl, it's like 10 times stronger. Is that right? 10 times stronger. I got two doctors sitting here. I'm like, oh, it's more. 100 times stronger. Like it's massive. And then they gave him, I'm probably gonna, my, my Dazalem, it's Jewish. I mean, it's not Jewish, it's uh, probably British. They gave him this to, to sedate him. He's that freaking out. They pulled out the nail, took off his boot. Not a mark. Went right between his big toe and his second toe. <laughs> but here's the thing about your brain. Here's the thing about the brain. The brain doesn't know that. All the brain knows is this. The brain, the same circuits that tell you you got kissed by a woman also tell you you got slapped by a woman. Your brain though knows 
by the eyeballs, I got slapped or I got kissed. Okay? So the brain is feeling something between his toes. And the, the brain is like, oh no, I see the nail. This is bad news. Don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. That's how powerful the brain is. You can use, the, the, the reason why the Bible says to us over and over and over again, give thanks. Offer the sacrifice of praise. You know why it says that? Because it will change you. That's why. Because it will change you. So they demonstrate it. Hot water brings out who Paul and Silas are and they're praisers and singers in the hottest water I can imagine. Amazing. And this jailer comes and the jailer, once again, we put on our Western 2000 years of Christianity. What he's actually saying is this. Everything that I have believed in in my life, duty, honor, Rome has failed. You guys have something that I want. He's not saying, tell me about Jesus. He's saying, my life is a mess, help me. And what they say to him is, it's, the Bible is condensed, do you know that? It's like all the, the water's been taken out, it's condensed. So when they say to a Roman soldier, which he would have been to become a jailer, when they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. They're saying something very condensed and very important. So when Peter shares the gospel with Jewish people, he doesn't say, Lord Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah has come. We've been looking for him for 1,500 years. He's come, he's here. When he talks to this Roman citizen, he uses the word Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, which is normally reserved for one guy. Who's the Kyrios of Rome? Caesar. What he's saying, condensed form, you need a new king. The old king has to go. Caesar's not your king anymore. You have to, this is a massive change for a Roman soldier to make. I don't serve that king anymore. I serve a new king, this new king. And this, Jesus is Lord. In Rome is going to be what causes all of the conflict. It's gonna be why there are 10 waves of persecution against the Christians because they're saying, we have a new king and it's not Caesar. It's essentially, from this point on, it's Christians are putting on a red coat and jumping into the ring with an angry bull. And when they would say, Jesus is Lord, that's what they're saying. And so this Roman soldier is saying, all right, my allegiance is no longer to Rome and to the empire. My allegiance is now to Jesus and his kingdom. It's brilliant. So then ending... But it was day, the magistrate sent the police. And one quick point, just, so there are like high church believes in infant baptism. One of the arguments they have for infant baptism is right here. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they baptized them. They said, there is the possibility that this jailer would have had babies and his whole household gets baptized here. I just throw that out so you'll know when they ask you. I personally think you need to make a choice for baptism. I think it's the book of Acts is believe in Jesus and be baptized. They're always linked together. Believe in Jesus and be baptized. At the age that a child or a person can believe in Jesus, what it means to have a new king, then be baptized. 
That's me again. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And they do this now. And they now, and they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and then when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So here's what happened. They're like, okay, you guys can go. You're good, go ahead. And Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Now, why did he wait till after he was beaten and put in prison to bring out his Roman citizenship? Because he could have pulled that out right away and they would have stopped, they wouldn't have beaten him and they wouldn't have put him in prison. It was illegal to beat a Roman citizen or put them in prison until they had been properly arraigned and put through procedures. So why did he wait? Here's my guess, that's all it is. Half of this city are slaves that are not Roman citizens. Paul is saying, you can live a Jesus life without being a Roman citizen. You can live a Jesus, I think that's why he did it. So why does he say it now? Because he knows this. If I, as a Christian, am run out of Philippi and I go out under weird circumstances, the Christians will always live underneath that cloud. I'm not gonna let that happen. You come, you get me out, you apologize to me. I'm gonna hang out and visit some people and go everywhere I possibly can to be seen, to show, uh-uh. They don't treat Christians like that. So I think that's why he does that. So here, a couple of quick questions and then we'll go. Paul's given this vision for new territory. And when he goes, the history of the world has changed. Has God given you a vision for new territory in Grants Pass, in Josephine County. If he has, do it. History can be changed. One vision, one man really, the world has been changed. Go for it, pray about it, partner with him. Number two, do you do homework? Twice in this chapter, Lydia opens her home the jailer brings all the prisoners, Paul says, all the rest to his home, feeds them, ministers to them, loves on them, helps them. Is your home a place where God's work happens? I hope it is. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11, David's trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant in. He does it wrongly. Uh, the Ark goes into Obed-Edom's house. And it says this, that God blessed Obed-Edom's whole house because the ark was there. I think when you bring in Jesus and you bring in people and you bring, where two or more are gathered, I'm in your midst. When you bring that in, there's a blessing that happens in your home, a shalom that comes there. I pray that we're doing good homework. Thirdly, Timothy laid down something so that he would not be an obstacle to the gospel. Are there things in your life that you do or participate in that you know are really obstacles to Jesus? I would say pray, 
seriously about saying, it's not that important. The kingdom in Jesus is more important than that thing. That I wanna do 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. I wanna become all things to all people that by all means, some might be saved. And that I might enjoy the blessings of the good news. When you are involved in the gospel, there's always a payback that you cannot imagine. That's what Paul's saying. I do this because I know every time I do, ah, I get blessed. Is there something you should give up? I've had to think about that. And then lastly, are you able to sing at midnight? Not me, but I want to. And I think one of the big ways that, you be, that you're able to sing at midnight is this. You stop asking, why is this happening to me? And you start asking, to what end? Is there a jailer that's watching me? And if I go through this singing and praising Jesus, he'll get saved. And I'll be let out of his captivity. I'll get blessed in it. It's not, why is this happening to me? But how are you gonna use this to save jailers and to set me free from myself? And when you think about it like that, it might just enable you to pray and sing at midnight. So Father, this day, thanks for the book of Acts. Thanks for these brothers, Paul and Silas and Timothy, who fought a good fight. Thanks for Lydia. You grabbed a hold of her and she became so generous, opening her home to a crew of missionaries. May we learn from the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. May we be excited. May we have vision for new territory in Grants Pass. May we have the ability, Lord, given to us by your spirit because we're being transformed by that power to sing songs at midnight like Paul and Silas, being set free from things that trap us and seeing salvation to those that are our enemies. May we be a people that willingly give up things, things that we can do, things that we're free to do, no doubt, but we give them up because we want to make sure you are beautiful in the eyes of all that see our lives. So would you work on us, Lord, we pray, so that we can be about your good work. And we ask this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.